Amen. Please be seated. During the four Sundays of Advent, we'll be looking at Scripture from a different place in the New Testament. We'll step away from 2 Corinthians for these Sundays to focus on who Jesus is. Um, The season of Advent, many of us are thinking of the nativity scene and the baby that was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. So our series during Advent this year is, what child is this? Who is this child? And we're going to answer it by looking at Colossians chapter 1. So one of the general epistles uh, of the New Testament, you might have to turn past Romans and Corinthians, and then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's named after a little city in Asia Minor, Colossae. We're just going to be focusing each week on the same paragraph, and we'll look at different parts of it. And we'll look at the first part of this this morning. Uh, We welcome those who are viewing live online and those who watch the video afterwards. Uh, The Lord bless you with his word today. Reading from the English Standard Version of the Holy Word of God. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. He, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word. May he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. What child is this? We didn't sing that famous Christmas song, but you've certainly heard it and remember some of the lyrics. It has the the plaintive uh, melody. It's almost a somber melody, a reflective melody. And that's certainly part of uh, what Christmas is about, reflecting on who Jesus is, this child. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet, while shepherds watch are keeping? Why lies he in such mean estate? We, we have to update ourselves sometimes on the language. What does it mean to lie in a mean estate? It doesn't mean that he was grumpy. It means that the estate, the place where he was laid, was mean or lowly or very plain and impoverished. It's an old-fashioned expression. Why, why did this child come to be in such a tough place? Surrounded by animals who are feeding. The line continues, Good Christian fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. There's something spiritual going on. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come present king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. 
I find that the song asks a lot of questions, makes a few observations, but doesn't really explain things for us. It's just a song. It's a hymn. It's not inspired scripture. And so in many respects, the world is left with the question, who is this child that can bring salvation and that this word can plead for sinners? This is a baby. Who is this baby? And why is he so impoverished if he is a king? We hope to answer a lot of those questions by looking at God's holy word through the Apostle Paul written to the churches. In this paragraph, this famous portion of scripture from the New Testament, all about Christ. If you ever wanted to study Christology, the doctrine of Christ, this is one of the prime places in the whole of the Bible to go. Indeed, some think that these verses existed as a hymn to the incarnate Jesus Christ. Uh, Long before Paul wrote the letter, and some say Paul just grabbed the popular hymn of the day and put it into his scripture epistle. Well, if he did that, that's not a problem. The Holy Spirit can do that. The apostle can take material, and when he writes it through the Holy Spirit, it's scripture. I don't think he just cut and pasted a hymn, but this has hymn-like qualities. This is a song of Christ and his incarnation, and it explains who he is. And let me tell you the big answer before we dig into the details. What this text tells us is that he is a sufficient savior because he is the supreme Lord. That's an expression coined by Dick Lucas a generation ago. Jesus is a sufficient Savior. He can push back the curse and bring salvation far as the curse is found because of who he is. He is God. He is the Supreme Lord. As another has pointed out, verses 15 to 20 are the most clearly reasoned presentation of the supremacy of Christ in all the Bible. And we get to study it for these four weeks. We're only going to get into the first couple of verses. But it is so important because we'll see a pattern here, as Dr. Greg Beal says. Christ's supremacy over creation. You saw the creation language. His supremacy over creation becomes a pattern for his new creation. The new birth. The new kingdom. Making way for the new heavens and the new earth. Those two things are related, as we'll see. Let's first take up what it starts out telling us that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Jesus is the divine Son of God. Uh, It starts in verse 15, referring to Jesus as the image of the invisible God. We all know that God is spirit and is not visible to man. Not visible to anyone. You can't look at God and live if you're a human being. Unless you've been atoned for and brought into glory. We see the Lord Jesus Christ because he became flesh and dwelt among us. But the first thing he says about Jesus. The Jesus you see is the image. And the Greek word is related to our English word icon. He is the image of what is invisible. In Jesus, you see God the Father. Jesus came not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. The works that Jesus does are the works of God the Father. The words that Jesus speaks are the words of God the Father to us. He is the image of God. 
And because he is the image of the invisible God, this points to his divinity. This points to his pre-existence. Jesus didn't become a being at his incarnation. He existed beforehand. And what Jesus does is he reveals the personal character of God. There's a parallel passage here we'll take a quick look at in Hebrews chapter 1. A little further into your New Testament, the book of Hebrews. We don't know the author, but we do have a marvelous picture of Christ in the book of Hebrews. The whole letter, but we're only going to look at its prologue. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. We're going to get to all those same points. But verse 3, it says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. These passages are quite similar. Talking about creative power, talking about divine character, talking about upholding things that have been created, you can lay Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 side by side. They're pretty consistent because they're both speaking about Christ. What child is this? He is the divine Son of God. He makes the Father known to us. As the image of the invisible God, the Son not only reveals to us God's character and nature, He also perfectly bears the imago Deo as the new Adam. We have to think even further today. You remember when God created Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 1? We don't need to read it. We just know that it says, I will create them male and female. I will create them in my image. And he put them out as his deputies in the world. They were bearing the image of God. Here it says, Jesus, this human person that walked among them is explained as more than human he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation he is the image of the perfect man as well as the perfect God he is in a sense the second Adam fully making God known bearing the imago Deo without any sinful taint or obfuscation. So we have something unique here. And so we say, an alternate way of saying he's the image of God, he's the Messiah. He is the Messiah, the anointed one who came to make God known, but came to take our flesh and to die in the place of sinners. This complex persona, this unique persona, the Messiah, the anointed one, fully God and fully man. This passage refers to the incarnation and reflects much of what John says in John chapter 1 as he begins his gospel. I'm sure you're familiar with those words. Uh, The gospel of John starts with words that sound so much like Genesis. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So whatever John's talking about is someone who's equal with God. And then it says in verse 14 of John 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
whoever Jesus is, he's no regular rabbi. He's no dude from Galilee. He's no zealot seeing a political moment. He's something so much more. And Christians of all people need to see Jesus as the scriptures portray him. He is the image of the invisible God. There's another phrase here, back to Colossians chapter 1. He is the firstborn of all creation. Well, wait a minute. If you said he's divine, how come all of a sudden he has a birthday? And this language trips up many people. And if you've ever had a Jehovah witness knock on your door, they'll point to this verse. How can Jesus be Jehovah? He's born. God was never born. Jesus is born. And they twist the scriptures. He is the firstborn of all creation. And that word means exactly what it meant by the pen of a Jewish scholar to a Jewish audience and Gentile Christians as well. Because firstborn does not simply mean you came out of a woman's womb. You have to understand the semantic range of the word. And there's more ways to understand it. And in the Old Testament world, these aren't obscure ways. These are primary ways to understand it. So pay attention here and make sure you don't make the mistake the Jehovah Witness do because they're wrong. They're dead wrong here. Jesus was eternally, is, is eternally the son, past, present, and future. Uh, he was the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is God. What does this mean then? Well, it means referring not to birth order, but to primogeniture, the practice that one descendant or one person would be designated the heir. Someone would fill the role of the oldest son. And in Bible times, that didn't necessarily mean the firstborn person. Normally it was the firstborn, but not always. Jesus can be the firstborn of all creation. He can be the heir of God the Father without having to be born in a created being. Because it's a position of honor that can be granted to someone. And we see that pattern throughout the Bible that oftentimes the one who receives the blessing, the one who leads, is not always the firstborn. That's the norm. You would expect that. And the, the, the normal rights, and, and this even came to Western culture uh, in past centuries. If you were the firstborn, you would inherit the estate. And if you're the second oldest boy, you had to <clears throat> join the army or become a clergyman or do something else because you're not inheriting the estate. But Christ is given the place of honor by his heavenly father. Let me give you one excellent example of, of what this honor of being first uh, is in the scriptures. Let's take a look at Psalm 89 and verse 27. Psalm 89 and verse 27. Some of you have uh, been studying the Bible for a while. Maybe you already know this passage. Uh, it's speaking about David as the king. Uh, Psalm 89 is written by Ethan the Ezraite, and it's talking about the, the love of the Lord. And in verse 3, it talks about David, my servant. It talks about David in verse 20. But if we read down as far as verses 26 and 27, uh, <clears throat> verse 27, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. God is speaking about 
elevating someone to the position of honor, elevating to someone to the position of inheritance, and it adds by Hebrew parallelism, as if highest of the kings of the earth, king of kings and lord of lords. That's what he's talking about. And in the original context, he was talking about David. Let me just ask, was David the oldest of his family that he should be thus honored? Do you remember how many brothers did David have? He had a lot of brothers. Where was he in the birth order? He was last. In fact, when they came to the sons of Jesse and Samuel was going to anoint a king, and the Lord kept saying, not this one, not the oldest, not the next oldest. And he runs through all the sons that were present. And Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any more sons? Because the Lord doesn't want me to anoint any of these. And they said, well, there's David. He's just the shepherd boy out in the fields. Go get him. And the Lord takes the obscure teenager and anoints him king of Israel. That's how God works. God confounds the wisdom of the world to accomplish his purposes so that he gets the glory. And here in this psalm, he's not simply talking about elevating David, but he's speaking of David's greater son. This is a messianic passage, and it's pointing to Christ. And God says, I will anoint someone as firstborn of all creation, and he will be the highest of kings. That's the thinking behind Colossians 1, When Paul is writing to the church in Colossae and to us to tell us about this person of Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation. Not that he is a human creature who had a birth. But that he is the honored heir, inheritor of all things and all glory. That's what it's telling us. And let me pause here to make an application. If the Bible's telling us that Jesus is the divine Son of God and the inheritor of all things, it's telling us something about the one who alone can accomplish our salvation. You see, the promised Savior from the Scriptures, if you just look at the Old Testament, is both human and divine. Right? When the gospel is first hinted at to Adam and Eve in the garden... Uh, God's trying to straighten it all out. Adam and Eve sin and the serpent's being judged. And, and the Lord said something that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15. It's the first glimpse of the gospel of how God's going to put things right. The one to bring salvation would be a seed of the woman. What does that mean? It would come in human form. To be the second Adam. And without sin to take care of sin. So we know that from the Old Testament. But the Old Testament as we read this morning from Isaiah 7, 14. A virgin will conceive and and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. Or Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. He'll be wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father and prince of peace. All in one. That unique being is Jesus. The only one who can accomplish our salvation. And let me just tell you why Paul is clarifying this. The church back in Colossae, that's in Asia Minor in the Lycus Valley, not far from Laodicea, about 100 miles away from Ephesus, Asia Minor. You can look at your Bible maps. This little town of Colossae, Paul had never been there. 
He didn't plant this church. He sent someone named Epaphroditus, and I think it's Epaphroditus, and he planted the church. So when confusing teachers creep into the church, Paul, as the apostle, writes them this letter to clarify, you don't need to listen to some of these other teachers. You don't need for them to supplement the gospel that points to Jesus because he alone is the image of the invisible God. He alone is the firstborn of all creation. He created all things. He sustains all things. He is the Redeemer. He answers the question, what child was born in Bethlehem? Paul gives them important Christological information. And how much more do we need that today? In a day where people think sincerity will save me. If I just do my best, I will get right with God. I'll just tell them, you know, I, I, I was sick on that other day and I didn't get that done. And we're a world of excuses. No one is righteous. No, not one, says the Bible. We need another's righteousness. We have no righteousness to compensate for sin. How do you pay for sin against an infinite God? You'll pay for it in hell for an eternity without a Savior. So who Jesus is is so important. Notice that the paragraph we're studying follows hard on scriptures, verses 13 and 14, that describe our salvation. If you need a savior, there's only one who fits the bill. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, God, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom, he's talking about in Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Who is that? Jesus is all important because you can't transfer yourself from darkness to light no matter how many candles you light, no matter how much Christmas spirit you have. You need this Jesus. The passage goes on to talk a little bit more about him as creator God. So let's look at, at verses 16 and 17 as well. And that'll, that'll be the focus. We're not going to do the whole paragraph this morning. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For, it's going to elaborate. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Let's just take verse 16. Through him. Things are created by him and for him. That tells us that Jesus is the creator and he is the goal of creation. He's the agent of creation. He creates and then he's the aim of creation. He's the purpose behind the fact that there is a creation. That ups the ante. That puts everything on the shoulders of Christ. And just so you don't miss it, when, he's, when Paul had written that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's the divine son of God, here he doubles down by telling a Jewish and a Gentile world that God is the creator. Well, Jesus is the creator. Therefore, Jesus is God. He, Jesus, by him, all things were created. There was a similar verse given in Colossians 1, uh, verse, uh, Colossians, excuse me, in Corinthians 8, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says this. Yet uh, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist, 
and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 1 Corinthians 8.6 says the same thing about the Father that it says about Jesus. And the same thing about Jesus that it said about the Father. How can that be? Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator God. Now people in the world, whether of this religion or that, have this inkling that if you can make things out of nothing, if you created the world, you must be God. I think that's part of our innate wiring as human beings. That's why we are without excuse. We can walk around and see things, uh, the beauty of the seasons, the, the way uh, a, a, a tree uh, drops its leaves and perhaps among the leaves are seeds or pine cones and then new tree. We see all this design in the world. We infer that there's a creator. I remember as a child in Mosinee, Wisconsin, which is famous for paper mills, lived in Mosinee for a little while as a first grader, and you know first graders are always curious. I, I figured out what that horrible smell was. It was the paper mill. <laughs> You've driven by a paper mill. And I, I just remember driving in the car, and the day I realized that those beautiful forests at the edge of town where all the trees were lined up in a row, so as you drove by them, you could see down each road. You know that visual effect? I remember the first day I realized they're so perfectly lined up. Someone planned that. That didn't just happen like in my backyard. Somebody planted and there were thousands of trees. And I was in awe at whoever pulled that off. Look around at the world and be in awe of what God has made. And then hear the scripture say that not only is God the Father, the creator, but Jesus as well. And it doesn't surprise us that if you go back to Genesis 1, God speaks in the divine plural. Let us make man in our own image. Because it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, three persons, one being, one God, and Jesus is God. He is the creator. That's the argument here of verse 16. Verse 15 and now verse 16. And it appears consistent with what we read in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. And it, it, it lists something interesting after he says he is the creator. By him all things were created. It gives this list, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. Why does Paul put in a list just when he's made that profound thing? He's not mentioning the birds and the bees, the fish and the everything else. That he made. He's talking about some very interesting things in this list. Powerful references. Well, we're not studying the whole letter of Colossians, but let me just tell you that the apostle was writing to them to help clarify some issues because false teachers were there. There were some confusions we don't know all that the false teachers were saying, but it's likely that they were big on angelic powers or some other Old Testament dimension that wasn't necessary to salvation. And these phrases that Paul uses in this list, thrones, dominions, rulers, those were all common Jewish terms in the debating circles down at the pub when they're talking about angels. Those were the categories that they used. Well, what about the angels that are invisible or the ones that became visible or the angels that have dominion or the angels? That... So it was a discussion of different religious minds of the time. So Paul gathers that language 
Just as we have our own language and talk about certain powerful spin masters and movers and shakers, Paul just takes that language and says, by him, all things were created. If there are such angels and categories and categories, on, 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 Christ is over all of them. He created all things. And notice how he ends. They were created through him and for him. Through him and for him. Dick Lucas said, The life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was a constant manifestation of the power of the Creator. Okay, Paul's writing this letter and he's trying to tell us who Jesus is, the child who was born. You're saying he was Creator? He was there in Genesis 1? Yeah. Well, should we just take your word for that, Paul? How could we prove that Jesus really had a hand in creation in the past? You know, we, we didn't see the name Jesus in Genesis. All we have are these gospel accounts of Jesus. Could we read in the gospels anything of Jesus being a creator, having power over creation or, or making something out of nothing? Perhaps you know, power over the human body, taking a withered hand and making it strong, taking a paralytic and giving him the ability to walk, taking a few loaves and fishes and feeding a superdome of people, thousands and thousands of people with just this little morsel. Or could we see Jesus exercising power over the laws of nature by walking on water or raising the dead? Oh, he is Lord, he is creator. And he showed those powers time and time again. When he once was awakened by the disciples in a storm on the Sea of Galilee, Mark chapter 4. And they're saying, Lord, don't you care that we perish? Look at the wind and the waves. And he kind of looks at him. And he says to the wind and the waves, Jesus speaks to creation and says, be still. The wind stopped and it was placid water. And the disciples were no longer in danger, but it says in Mark 4, they feared all the more and asked, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. We know what child this is. We know what person this is. He is creator God. Come among us. Emmanuel. That's what makes the incarnation so mind-boggling glorious. God came and dwelt among us. He was full of glory, full of grace and truth, and full of power. And he was creator And all that he created was for him. You can tell what people worship by whom they serve. Right? And we can see if you land on a desert island and the islanders worship the volcano, they throw fruit into the volcano or sacrifices because they're worshiping the volcano and they won't do anything to make the volcano angry. Modern man doesn't worship anything does he his health his wealth 
his fame. Christians worship Jesus because we know who he is. And we know that all things exist for his glory. And there's no sweeter spot on earth than to walk as a disciple of Jesus. To do his will. To obey and serve him. To know him and to have his blessing. We who pay attention to the word of God, we're like a tree planted by streams of living water. Our leaf does not wither. And whatever we do in the Lord prospers. The wicked are not so. All things were created for him. All history past pointed to that moment. When the time was full, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And he will return, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess. The believers, the unwilling unbelievers, they will bow and acknowledge, wow, Jesus really is Lord. And those who know him and love him will be welcomed into his presence. And those who continue to resist the truth or denied him in this life will be sent away. It's all about Jesus. That's what the Bible tells us. And and your life won't make sense until you understand who created you and why they created you. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in God. Jesus is both the agent and the aim of creation. There's an application or two here. (laughs) Quickly, one says, we need no other helps to be saved than Jesus. If he is creator and he is the aim of all creation, if he's in charge, and if he has all the power, we don't need the help of angels to be saved. We don't need the help, hear me now, of Mother Mary, pray for me. We don't need the help of the saints of the church who might have excess merit, whatever that is, because that ain't good enough. Because Jesus is who he is, he needs no helpers I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. There's another application here too. It comes from something F.F. Bruce said. We don't need to live in fear. F.F. Bruce said, uh, for those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors. They know that their Redeemer is also creator, ruler, and goal of all. If God is for us, who can be against us? You don't need to live in fear or in terror. You read the headlines. You have someone act hostily to you. You have hopes and plans that were in your heart and mind and they're dashed. Don't let those things rock your boat. Trust in Christ. Entrust yourself to him. He has all that power. And he's orchestrating a wonderful conclusion for the world. Cling to him by faith. And you need not fear. How did Bruce say it? 
the universe has no ultimate terrors. We were talking the other day, are those really UFOs now that the government has acknowledged all these flying things? I think they're still trying to cover for their tracks. But if there are things we can't explain, we need not fear them. For Jesus created all that is. There's no renegade molecule, no renegade being, no renegade power out there that can thwart his plans to bless us and to keep us. A final point here in our text as we've started this paragraph uh, comes from verse 17, and it's all a, a reiteration of the primary point. Verse 17, and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This recaps and, and repeats verses 15 and 16, but it reminds us of his preeminence. He is before all things. He has honor in all things in all ways. That, that expression of being firstborn, he's going to inherit all things. This simply says, even now he is before all things. Makes it more explicit. He's before, in, in, in part, he's before linearly, temporally. He existed before all things. Christ pre-existed. He was around in glory with the Father long before the incarnation. The word was with God, the word was God. He's before all things. So we come back to the key, I think, of this whole sermon this morning in the start of this paragraph. If Christ is the supreme Lord of all, on whom all other heavenly powers depend, then he cannot require assistance from any of those other dependent authorities in order to bring God's people to him. He is a sufficient savior because he is the supreme Lord. He can bring about the new creation. He can bring about salvation in you, the new birth in you, even you, because he's brought about creation itself. The parallels, the patterns are here. How is this child in the manger going to save the world? He created the world. He knows how to fix it. There's a funny story that Kent Hughes tells about uh, I have to summarize it. A South American uh, business had bought, this is many decades ago, bought a printing press from a company in the U.S. and they disassembled it, shipped it down to South America and reassembled it, but it still wouldn't print. So they cabled the company saying, hey, we can't fix it. Can you send someone to fix it? And they send this young guy from the company down there. And when this young guy shows up and starts looking at it, they're panicking. How does this guy know anything? Look how young he is. So they cable back to the, the seller and says, uh, can you send us somebody with more experience? Uh, you know, this guy doesn't look so promising. And they telegraph back and says, well, he's the inventor of that printing press. We're pretty sure he can fix it since he made it. You see, if Christ is who the Bible says he is, he can accomplish what he says he will accomplish. He is before all things and he holds all things together he is sovereign power, sustaining all things. Sometimes when we talk about creating, we think of it just in past tense. God has two great works, creation and providence. Providence is all the things he's doing now. Jesus is creator. He has that power. And he is sustainer even now. In him, all things hold together. That's parallel to what we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, says Hebrews, upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Jesus. 
When you pray to Jesus, He has power over everything. He holds it all together. There's a mystery here. But Paul was pleased to give information in his epistles in the New Testament about that mystery. God, man, in one, what he has accomplished and how it's going to work. He holds all things together. There's an important application here that I do want to take a minute to make. For lack of words, I'm calling it a unified reign. And I hope you can track with me because this is important because the world is is separated the two things that are unified in Jesus. Jesus is both creator of the physical realm and his savior in the spiritual realm, right? We're with it. That's what this passage is telling us. Because of who he is, this is what he can do spiritually in the new birth, the kingdom of God, and the spiritual work that he does. Both are connected in Jesus. But you know, the world, for a long time in its rebellion, from God, whether you go back to the enlightenment and whatnot, man began to separate the secular from the sacred. They began to make distinctions over the physical world and the spiritual world. And as long as you're spiritual, that's one thing, and the physical world is something else. And so we have these two types of truth. We know what's true in the physical world because of science. What's true in the spiritual world? Well, that all of a sudden falls into relativism. And because the world has pushed and promoted a secular, sacred divide, they've attacked the Christian worldview, the worldview of the Bible, which says they're all under the lordship of Christ. You can't say, oh, I have science, so... I don't need spiritual truth, and spiritual truth is relative because we can't test it scientifically. You can't force this divide and separation between material and spiritual. Because the one who made the material world is the agent and actor in the spiritual realm. So Christian, it matters not only what you believe here, but how you behave in the world. It matters that Christ is king, not only on Sundays or in church time or over your spirit, he's king over your life. There's a unified reign of this Lord because the Bible doesn't separate the world into this dualistic view. The world has, and it's created so much mischief. That's part of the application that Christ Creator and Savior holds all things together. And this physical world serves his purposes until the last day when he will make even that new. The world itself will have a new birth because of who Jesus is. So don't fall prey to the worldly thinking that divides the sacred from the secular and would put God in a box because he's spiritual. No. He's maker and Lord of all. So in closing, we need to just finally answer again our question, what child is this? This, this is Christ the Lord, the King, the Creator, the Sustainer, the one with power who makes all the difference in procuring our salvation. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To God be the glory. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for what the Bible tells us about Christ. How it answers and explains 
the Bethlehem manger scene. Father, we confess if we have underestimated Jesus or sold him short or not known his power and his person, forgive us. And may we serve him as creator and king and Lord and powerful sustainer of all things. May our faith in him only be larger and more fully exercised. Father, take the truth of who Jesus is, the testimony of the Gospels, and the present ministry of your Holy Spirit to convince the world about Jesus. Help us to tell the world of Jesus. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.